HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. This week on Meet and 3, we rethink surplus by exploring how innovators are promoting sharing mindsets and responding to excess in creative ways. The whole life cycle of food would be the third largest greenhouse gas emitter behind China and the United States if it were a country. You know, in the age of COVID, where a lot of those institutional processors did grind to a halt and a lot of farms had to dump milk in Pennsylvania, even while supermarket cases were, were bare, the organic market stayed strong. They source all of these ingredients, they do all of this work, and then they just boil it for a few minutes and then they throw it away. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, hey, welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. We're recording remotely, and it's Tuesday, March 16th, 2021. So for many of you, this week is St. Patrick's Day. I definitely know in the beer and bar industry, uh, it's an important time of the year. We kind of kick off, uh, you know, the, the spring season this year more importantly than ever. Um, but our stories, we're, we're going to digress a little bit uh, and follow this very interesting trail uh, that these three uh, three folks are involved in. So it's following the spent grain trail from malt to brewery to brewers crackers, and um, we're gonna go. We don't know where the show is gonna go, but we're gonna we're talking to some very interesting people in the Boston and Maine uh, craft beer world. So let's introduce ourselves. Uh, start with Tyler. Hey, my name is Tyler Fitzpatrick. I'm the brewmaster at Lamplighter Brewing Company in Cambridge, Massachusetts. That's great, man. Thanks for joining us. David? Hi, I'm David Brand with Blue Ox Malthouse. I um, work with a lot of our customers and do quality control and product development. Great. And you guys are up in Maine? Yeah, we're about 30 minutes north of Portland. Okay. And Kyle? I am Kyle Fiescanaro, and I am the owner and founder of Brewers Crackers. Um, We're located in Somerville, Massachusetts. All right. So, Kyle, uh, we met you about a month ago. I, I know you were on another Heritage Radio Network show, Cutting the Curd. 
And I, I thought your story was interesting. Um, just tell us about your crackers and so people understand why this is relative to a beer show and why what you do is important. Sure, yeah. Uh, I, in a nutshell, take the spent grain um, from craft breweries, uh, bring it to my bakery, and instead of turning those spent grains into compost or feeding them to animals, we turn them into crackers. So uh, it's kind of a food waste solutions company and a consumer packaged goods company, all in the same thing. Wow. Now, how much uh, spent grain is, is put out by, you know, even small breweries that you work with? Um, let's see. Uh, depends on the size of the brewery. Uh, I think when I was getting grain from Tyler, I think in a single batch, something around 2,000 to 3,000 pounds sounds about right, Tyler, right? Yeah. <clears throat> um, probably pretty standard, like 1,600 pounds if we're doing a, a 16 Play-Doh beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's dry weight. So, you know, you're talking wet weight when you're talking spent grain. So you might know better than me, Kyle, if you're picking up a, a five-gallon bucket of wet grains. That's probably an extra, um, I don't know. 15 to 20 pounds just in that five gallon bucket. So the weight really increases once that water is absorbed by the grain. Yeah. You're talking about uh, triple the weight probably when it's wet. Yeah. And that, and that's just one batch in that lamplighter we're doing uh, let's say six to eight batches a week. So we're, we're producing a lot of spent grain and I, we're a, like a, a small brewery, but we produce a lot of beer locally uh, for our size. So um, you know, we're just one brewery in the neighborhood. So we're, you know, a small piece of this greater uh, uh, issue that's happening in within our industry. And, you know, a lot of breweries have the the benefit of being near a farm or a farmer that wants to take the grain or compost the grain, feed it to their animals. But there's a ton of other breweries that don't have that luxury. So it's definitely an issue that Kyle kind of saw and, you know, saw an opportunity to step in and do something about it. Kyle, take take us down memory lane. Uh, All right. Tell us when you first figured out that spent grain was was usable. Yeah, the first memory I have of using spent grain to make a food product of any kind um, was in 2014. I was working at a restaurant in Prospect Heights, Brooklyn. I was living in Clinton Hill at the time and riding my bike past um, Kelso Brewing. Um, in Clinton Hill, uh, passing a big dumpster of spent grain sitting on the sidewalk. Um, that brewery was next to a super big Jewish bakery. Uh, I passed the bakery every day. Um, and then just seeing the grain in that huge dumpster next to that Jewish bakery that smelled so good. Um, it sounds like, was like fairy tale story, but it really was in that moment. I'm like, wow. I'm like, if that grain can just be baked into a product, this the product must be um, exponentially better, you know, than just using plain flour. Um, so I went to the brewery. I asked the guys if I could take a bag of grain, and they said, "Yeah, sure." Um, took it back to the restaurant, and I made some super simple crackers, and the rest is history. We put <laughs> we put the crackers on the menu uh, that night. And they stayed on the menu, and I just got better at making crackers uh, every time I made them. So fast forward, how, how did you meet Tyler? 
so fast forward, um, I was living in Brooklyn. Uh, I met a super awesome girl, which is now my wife. She was going to graduate school up here in Boston. So I followed her. Um, <laughs> we ended up living in Cambridge together and I needed to find a new brewery to get grain. Um, uh, at that point I wasn't working in a restaurant. I was working in a, a deli. Um, so I had a lot of time on my hands. I wasn't working those line cook hours anymore. Um, at that point, that's 2016. So that was the same month that Lamplighter was opening. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just walked into Lamplighter one day. I think I was on a run. I walked <laughs> in the Lamplighter and I asked if I could have some spent grain. Um, and Tyler walked out. Um, and I think when you're a brewer and somebody comes in asking for spent grain, there's like a piece of the brewer's mind that's like, I hope this guy can take all of it. <laughs> and, I, and I think that's like what Tyler was thinking. I could see it in his eyes. You know, like, does he have like hoping I had like a dumpster or like buckets to take this stuff? Um, but I had a plastic bag. So I mean, t- Tyler, <laughs> Tyler, that makes sense. Cause I know, I mean, a part of a running your brewery is you're, you're keeping everything clean all the time. Yeah. It, it gets difficult. <laughs> that's for sure. So you know, staying on top of things and keeping things clean. And certainly, uh, you know, spent grain um, doesn't stay clean for very long. It kind of uh, gets uh, pretty smelly after 24, 48 hours. So um, you want to get rid of that as quick as you can. And being in the middle of Cambridge in a city, it's uh, it's difficult to find someone to come grab your grain. And, you know, farmers don't want to come into the city um, food waste companies are, uh, hit or miss, uh, to get them to show up. Uh, and you certainly don't want that to be a big expense for your brewery is to dispose of something that is ultimately worth something, uh, in terms of, uh, being a, a food product or being, uh, useful as animal feed or something like that. So it's, it's a, it's a tough battle. And especially given our location, we don't have much outdoor space. So, we have to store everything inside the brewery until it goes somewhere. So we're constantly battling with uh, uh, moving things in and out of the brewery and getting rid of stuff. But yeah, certainly um, Kyle's right. You're, you're kind of just hoping that someone will show up someday and just have the solution. And (laughs) especially us being right down the street from, from MIT, I've always just hoped that someone would just, you know, show up and be like, I just built the bioreactor. Do you have any fuel? (laughs) Well, now they mention it. Um, but you know, that hasn't happened yet, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's difficult. It's one, it's an issue for every brewery. It's a consideration that you have to have, uh, as you open up as a brewery, um, what are you going to do with your spent grain? You can't just throw it in the trash. You can't, uh, you know, keep it in your brewery. You got to get rid of it some way and, you know, you got to find a good solution. Yeah. The crackers are a good one. So let's, let's bring in David now. So David, how do you fit into this puzzle? Well, I I, uh, I kind of originate the problem, I suppose. <laughs> um, we start out with with uh, with raw grain that's already dry, and we just uh, we we actually go kind of through a similar process as the um, one that Tyler does. We we soak the grain in in big tanks and uh, try to you know draw something from from that product uh, that we put in there um, with by adding water to it. So we start off with a really dry grain and we soak it um, and coax it into germinating and it starts to come alive. And 
we kind of trick it into into thinking that it's going to become grass one day, and um, we kind of let it let it grow in in a controlled environment, um, and then dry it back down once uh, all the kind of, kind of the chemical reactions have happened within this uh, dense grain. And um, once it's dry and flavorful, we we send it out to the brewers. Um, so it's drier, you know, when when we're done with it than when we started with it. But from there, you know. A brewer like Tyler will will be able to crack it open really easily and withdraw all of the starchy uh, goodness, the, the the sugars and the proteins, the nutrients that yeast need to to feed off of in order to make beer what it is. Um, so that's that's kind of our process. We take raw grain, we let it grow for a little bit, and uh, dry it down so that brewers can use it. Yeah, well, go, going back to the malt, um, you know, there's been a lot more interest lately in craft malting. Um, so tell us like kind of the day in the life of, of Blue Ox Malt House. Just like what 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 are the, the people doing? I know it's like a very labor intensive. Yeah, we um, were involved in kind of a few different steps of our process at any given day. We're soaking a batch of grain in our tanks uh, so that it starts to germinate. Once it's germinated, um, today was an example of this. We um, we empty the tanks and, and spread the, the sprouted, um, just sprouting grain onto our germination floor, and we let it um, we let it grow there under controlled temperatures and humidity. Um, we have to turn it to to keep it alive. Um, and just like Tyler was saying, with spent grain, you can't just let um, something. With, with a lot of starch and sugar, just uh, sit there wet, it'll, it'll start to go bad. So that's the same with, with, uh, with the raw grain too. So we turn it and that requires um, some work throughout the day. And, and that works, um, that goes on for about four days. And um, once, once uh, the time is up, we dry it down. And so we load up a, a big kiln, uh, a dryer really, um, that uses a lot of heat and air to remove the moisture from this wet green malt, as it's called, and that stabilizes all of the um, all of the enzymes that brewers need um, in in the in the malt while uh, giving it different levels of flavor of toastiness. So we can turn up the heat on our kiln and um, and really drive really interesting. Uh, flavorful characteristics from from a malt uh, or for a brewer, and once that's done, we unload the kiln and we package it into fifty pound bags or uh, two thousand pound bags, and uh, we ship out malts every day. Um, so we're doing um, kind of any number of those processes uh, every day. So it's it's a lot of working with dry, dusty. Uh, environments on on the finishing side and this kind of wet um, moist um, kind of green cucumbery smelling um, characteristic on on the malting side um, the germination side that's a really uh, really fascinating process that really lets you dive into something that's living um, it's really cool I was looking at your website you, you've got quite a d- diverse cast of of crew up there. What yeah. kind of person is drawn to being a maltster, a floor maltster? We've had home brewers. It's kind of the intersection of brewing and agriculture. We're we're kind of in this middle zone where we are 
trying to connect local well, and we're, we're a craft malt uh, house and that um, that that means that we're really interested in connecting our local brewers to our local farmers and so we act as kind of this this way station um, and so the people who come to work at the malt house um, are drawn to both agriculture and and brewing um, you know Brewing is extremely technical and creative, and um, I think draws a lot of um, a lot of different people into that world. And um, agriculture is is kind of similar. Um, you know, you're you're kind of at the whim, at the mercy of natural forces, while also having to pay really close attention to uh, what's going on. And uh, so we get, yeah, we kind of we kind of are the intersection of that. Um, so it's been great to work with. Um, folks who are, are really interested in um, in growing food and have worked in agriculture before, uh, and who have been home brewers or have worked in in, in a brewery before. Uh, so those are, and as you say, I say craft malt has become um, is, is, has been a growing industry really rapidly for the last few years. So there is not a lot of experience in in malting when people arrive. So um, it's. Uh, it, it's mostly from those intersections of um, of interest right there, agriculture and, and brewing. It's been fun. No, oh, that's a great intro. Um, Tyler, uh, what do you want to talk about? Because there's a million things I want to ask you. I, I did come yeah. visit you in Cambridge, and that was it was one of those pandemic days where the only place in Cambridge I could go inside was <laughs> in your brewing area, and it was yeah. cold out, so I appreciate it. Yeah, um, man. How have you guys evolved? I'm just going to do like a general story, but how have you guys evolved, um, you know, those last four or five years in terms of things like getting your ingredients, for example? And, uh, you know, are you using any malts from Blue Ox? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, for for us at Lamplighter, we, we kind of focus on, uh, you know, brewing a wide range of styles for sure. Um, and as, I, I don't know, I, I guess I could start by saying that like, as a brewer in general, um, my goal when designing a recipe is to create a, something, envision something that uh, a concept that I see as a, a good finished product, you know, and have a kind of two sentences in my head as to what does this taste like? What, how I, I describe it to myself and envision this kind of finished good. And then you just have to kind of work backwards and get there uh, via the tools at your disposal, your your equipment, your personnel, your ingredients, and everything. So, <clears throat> um, as a brewer in general, you are always trying to achieve that that goal that you set for yourself, and closing the gap between reality and that that uh, you know that perfect beer that you've envisioned. So, you know, you're always kind of tweaking things and honing things in and trying to get to that perfect spot with every given recipe or concept. Um, but yeah, certainly it's, it's nice as we grow and continue to produce beer uh, and new beers and new recipes and new ideas and collaborate with local breweries and local restaurants. And um, I think it's extremely important to support and utilize local ingredients Um especially malt and local hops and uh, not just for the sake of acquiring and 
using locally grown unique ingredients, but for the sake of supporting local agriculture as well. Um, we buy a lot of hops from a, a farm in Northfield, Massachusetts called Four Star. <clears throat> and they grow some amazing, amazing products. And I, I don't know, it's, it's, it's interesting to me because uh, the land and soil is just so unique in different parts of the world. So you could, you could grow one uh, hop variety on the Northwest, Pacific Northwest, and you could grow that very same varietal in soil in the, the Connecticut River Valley. And it's going to come out, the flavor profile is going to be, you know, unique in its complete own right. And you can grow a completely unique product in a just different part of the world because of the soil and the growing conditions and the climate. And I'm absolutely sure, I can't say for certain, I, I definitely don't know my barley varieties as well as I should, but I'm, I'm certain that it must be applicable to barley as well. I, I know I once worked with a corn farmer and you know, he would always talk about like what the best variety was this year. And I'm like, Oh, silver queen is dying out. You know, it's not, it's not producing as great a flavor as it used to. And, uh, ambrosia is really hitting its stride right now. And, uh, it, I just think that like the genetics of agriculture, it comes and goes and you get things that really come into their own and really develop really unique flavor profiles. And, you know, breeders are constantly looking for the next variety and, you know, looking to develop new flavors and new barley varieties or hot varieties, and uh, trying to grow their product line. And I find that extremely interesting. So, um, it, that on a brewing level really drives me to pursue these locally grown ingredients and, uh, meet, uh, local hop growers and local maltsters and, uh, people who grow barley and wheat and learn more about that from an agriculture perspective, because that to me is like the really, that's, that's the beginning of the craft right there is that seed coming out of the ground or that rhizome sprouting. And the maltster is essentially starting the brewing process and then, you know, putting a quick halt to it and maltsters over the, you know, centuries have gotten so good at their craft that they're able to produce a wide range of flavors uh, you know, if you're talking back in the 1600s or something, there was probably like three different types of malt you could get. Like, you know, toasted pale malt was a revolutionary thing when it was first invented. <laughs> you know, I was like, holy crap, we could have pale beer. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it, malt has developed over time. And, uh, you know, these days, absolutely, it's its own craft. And it, you can produce such crazy flavors from, you know, tweaking little things and controlling moisture content and controlling heat and time and re-stewing or, uh, I mean, smoked malt as well. Um, so that really kind of gets me excited is just thinking about the connection between agriculture and craft. And then, you know, they pretty much, they halt the process, they stop it, they make it shelf stable and then they sell it to brewers and it makes the brewer's life a lot easier not to have to germinate and malt their own uh, barley. So, um, yeah, it's a really unique craft and, um, yeah, I find it really interesting and I love meeting people who do it on, uh, small scales and are passionate about it. And I still have the utmost respect for people who do it on a large scale to, to be able to produce a product in huge volumes and keep it consistent 
and it's it's mind blowing. Um, I don't know. I I say the same thing when I start talking about Budweiser is like I have absolute respect for the product they make because it is from a brewing perspective to produce that volume of beer at a consistent level is just like oh man, it's 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 mind blowing to to be that good at your job. Yeah, I just wanted to jump in off of that. Um, you know, it takes. It takes a the person using the end product really um, to shape it in a way. Tyler, like going to the fields and meeting the um, the farmers and the hop, hop growers and the and the maltsters, like you at that point are part of the supply chain. Um, you're, I, I think, at the scale of craft, the the, the scale that we are all in, um, you know, everybody has the opportunity to influence the supply chain. So when farmers are growing, you know. And breeders are, are breeding um, new new lines of, of barley or, or hops. You know, flavor is potentially part of that, but agronomic uh, focus is is huge. So, you know, does this barley grow well in this region? What kind of uh, barley is going to yield better or provide? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, D- David, hold on. I'm just going to s- take a step back. So, you're in Maine. Are you are you only sourcing from Maine farmers? And what, what are some of the grains that, that are doing well for you guys? Barley is, um, is, a, is a major crop in Maine. There are a lot of acres uh, of barley grown up in uh, the north of Maine where it's in rotation with potatoes. Um, that's uh, the grain that happens to be most utilized by brewers. Um, so it's been a, a, great, a great fit to... Um, to have the knowledge and the capacity in Maine to uh, grow barley that is also uh, good enough, has the quality to meet the specifications of, of brewers, really. Um, for maltsters, you know, we, we need a certain specification in order to satisfy, um, you know, the demands of all of the, the technical aspects of the brewing process. But where Tyler is talking about, um, you know, he's focused on, he's focused on flavor. Clearly the maltster has the opportunity to influence that. And it's not a small one, but, um, it comes down to varietal choice and to growing practice and region, like he's saying. And, and, uh, if Tyler doesn't get get in on the conversation there, um, you know, he might not be able to get what he wants. So I think having a relationship, uh, up and down the supply chain has been really important. Um, wheat grows really, uh, grows, grows well here too. Um, it hasn't been historically as an important, um, rotational crop, but, uh, is increasingly uh, being grown, uh, especially for flour in, in the Northeast. Um, oats are a big, big, uh, grain, small grain crop in Maine. Rye, um, we have, um, we have sourced triticale out uh, from uh, from uh, New York this year, um, there's definitely some crops that don't do well in Maine. Um, corn is is one of those um, those those grains, kind of larger grains that um, doesn't doesn't work well with the with the crop rotation that um, that a lot of growers in in, in our state need. Um, so there's some challenges, um, but uh, but overall, you know, Maine has a a lot of acreage, a lot of acreage in farmland, um, and it can, you know, and does readily su- supply a lot of New England uh, and beyond with with grain. Uh, so it's been, 
um, it's been great to, to work with farmers in Maine and to have, uh, to have people outside of Maine come and, uh, and experience that. David, is, is that because, I, I mean, I know a little bit about the Maine grain scene. Is that because um, there were just so many potato farmers that, that did crop rotation? Because I know that in New York, a lot, a lot of agricultural land in the 20th century became dairy grazing. Mm, and mm. Um, it kind of like cut that chain. Yeah, I think, you know, you can't grow potatoes year after year. Um, I think barley in, in, barley in, in northern Maine has been um, in rotation basically for potatoes. Uh, potatoes were so big um, of an industry. And um, I don't, potatoes haven't been doing quite as well as they used to. Um, but the knowledge and, and the ability to grow barley has, has existed and continues to exist. And uh, before there were craft maltsters, um, some of that barley was being bought by um, grain brokers and, and being sent up to Canada to get malted by a Canada malt company. Um, they would maybe blend it in with, with other, other grain from the region. Um, and so that was kind of the opportunity that Joel, who started Blue Ox, saw was that there was a lot of barley going out of state to get malted and then probably getting imported back into the into the state wow so that, that's really interesting so it wasn't like that the that they had to start a whole new barley growing industry in maine that that, that had already existed yeah yeah there there was the infrastructure and the knowledge to grow it um what didn't exist is was kind of the to meet the needs of the specifications of craft maltsters and craft brewers. Um, but you know, the, the knowledge of how to grow barley and the management tools, um, at farmer's disposal, um, and the capacity for, for harvest and storage and, uh, just like maintaining quality, um, has, has been there. Um, there's still some, some work to do to, to scale it up. David, I've always heard from a agricultural perspective too, that, um, barley is a, an, um, uh, rye as well as a wonderful rotational crop so that it kind of regenerates the soil. So it, it sounds like that there, there's a, there's a supply there. And so it was easy for you guys to kind of step in and say, Hey, don't, don't ship it out. We'll take it from you. If you're growing it as a rotational crop, uh, grow the right variety and we'll, we'll take it from there. Absolutely. You know, um, you know, manage it, manage it for kind of the quality, um, uh, that, you know, brewers and monsters need, um, was, yeah. was part of that conversation. You know, folks would grow not just for, for grain brokers to send to Canada malt, but, um, and, but for, for feed quality as well. Um, and, uh, but often, you know, just plowing it back under, maybe they didn't have infrastructure to actually harvest grain. Yeah. And like you're saying, Tyler, uh, just like the fact of, of growing, um, a grain crop as, as a cover crop to, um, to boost soil health. Uh, mm -hmm. was, was, is important. So yeah, there's a whole, a whole load of reasons that, that grain is growing in Maine. David, this is great. And we're, we're going to come back and talk a little more about some of the things you do as a monster, but I want to go to Kyle. So Kyle, um, you're, you're in the middle of all this, but when you're working with spent grain, I mean, can you tell what, what the grain is or what kind of malt it is? Um, and, and does it, do you test that before you make your crackers? And then do you actually, could you ever do like a single malt cracker? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that spending so much time in the brewery with uh, Tyler, just hanging out and just picking his brain, 
um, made me a uh, better person, uh, better baker. <laughs> um, and, and it actually just allowed me to be able to like speak, speak, speak grain, you know, before, mm-hmm. before I hung out in the brewery, I didn't really know how to talk about grain with people. And I think that's kind of like a missing piece. Like if someone wanted to start a spent grain cracker company tomorrow, they might be able to start one, but I don't know if they can walk into a brewery and start talking brewer, (laughs) you know, and and they're going to be a fish out of water and they're not going to be able to put the pieces together. So yeah, I can, I can look at a bucket of something and with my, not so trained eye can figure out um, if it was an IPA or uh, if there's obviously if there's some darker malt in there, um, if there's some oats in there, maybe I don't want it or maybe I do want it. Um, Sometimes in the past I've tried to make crackers that were a little bit more roasty and darker um, and they might not have worked out because when you're baking, you kind of need to know when things are cooked um, and just adding that level of confusion. Maybe that darker malt makes your product a little darker. So the bake time might be different. Um, so those are kind of things that I try to stay away from. So I think the grain, I guess the, the combination of malt I use now is pretty cl- as close you can get to a single malt cracker as you can find. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Hey, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the tabard is comprised of 35 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail served on the beautiful patio, which has ample room for social distancing. Travelers from around the world find the tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Hey, hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Check us out and become a member at heritageradionetwork.org and support all our podcasts, including Beer Sessions Radio. So we're talking with uh, Tyler, David, and Kyle about Brewers Crackers and and diving more into malt and grains, um, which which I think we all want to talk about. But I want to go back to making the beer. So, Tyler, um, on your rotation, let's talk about picking the malts for a, a recent beer, like you're, you're, you have an export stout out for St. Patrick's Day. Yep. Just to walk us through the, the process of picking the, the malts. And then we'll see how David, um, you know, David can weigh in on how other brewers design their beer. Yeah. So um, that's a good question. Cause you know, when you're going, when you're designing a recipe um, certainly, you know, you're designing a, a finished flavor profile and so you have to make a lot of decisions as to how am I getting there? Um, so, you know, and it, it also depends on what are you doing? Are you doing something kind of new age and uh, current or experimental? Or are you going for something kind of traditional? And, you know, there's a reason beer styles have been around for so long is because, you know, 
they've been honed in on and they are good. And so we shouldn't change them. We should try and uh, do the, the example, the style, uh, do it right and do it as best as we can. And there's a reason there's style guidelines and kind of recommendations as to, you know, what is an export stout? How do you define an export stout? What's an extra stout? What is a dry stout? And uh, kind of knowing, I, I think it's a brewer's responsibility to know those guidelines and to know, you know, what are my parameters for this traditional style? This, you know, you know, a lot of different Irish uh, uh, breweries will produce an export stout. Um and, you know, knowing over time, knowing the history too, knowing what started it, what came from it, like, uh, you know, Guinness got so popular that they started shipping it across the world and they realized, hey, we can't just ship Guinness draft. It doesn't last. It, it sours on the ship. So how do we make it last? Oh, we got to make it hoppier and boozier so it'll last on the ship. And, you know, they started doing that. And, you know, it it wasn't like, you know, some... Uh, a brewer with a mustache in like 1780 was like, oh, we should do an export stout. That'd be pretty cool. It was like, no, like <laughs> decade, decades past where they were just shipping beer across the country. And over time, you know, over probably a century, it was just, it became like, oh, this is, this is a thing. Uh, this is a style. This is, this exists. And it has existed for so long that other brewers will say, hey, there's a market for this. Let's do it too. Um, so, you know, when I'm, when I'm going to produce a traditional style of beer, I'm, you know, reading a lot about the kind of the history and refreshing my knowledge as to, you know, where it all came from, why, why it is what it is and what are the parameters, what, what do people generally kind of regard the style as being, um, so that, that's kind of where I start. And then, you know, for an export stout, I mean, you want to go with some sort of, uh, uh, you know, pit, English style pale malt. I don't know. David could probably correct me on the the language here, um, but I, from my perspective, if you're buying a pale malt from a uh, an American malt company or a North American malt company, it's generally going to be um, on the lower end of toasty level. Um, you know, uh, the SRM, the color level of the the malt is going to be kind of, uh, you know, on that lower end versus an English style pale malt, which, uh, um, is, I believe Thomas Fawcett is still traditionally four malted. Um, that's going to be on that a little bit higher end. And I'm not talking, you know, it's dark. No, it's just, it's like when you leave the, the your toast in the toaster for, uh, 20 seconds longer than you normally do. And it's a little Brown instead of being like that light tan color. That's, that's the difference we're talking about here. And, um, so that, that pale malt, that English pale malt, that Maris Otter is going to be a slightly more flavorful, slightly more, um, yeah, um, developed and broken down. The starches are slightly more available. It's slightly toastier. And so you're going to get a kind of more distinct flavor from it, a more, uh, toasted biscuit flavor from it. And, you know, you, then you're kind of saying, you're asking yourself other questions too. Like what are, whether, what are the other malt flavors that I want out of this beer? Uh, do I want like a kind of roasty espresso note or a, a, a nice dark chocolate note? Uh, you know, some, some coffee, some mocha. Um, okay. How do I get there? And uh, <clears throat> David can talk a little bit as to like the, the process for uh, making caramel malts. 
but as a brewer, you know a lot about your caramel malts. You know, um, you know, you know the range of caramel malts and what you're kind of uh, targeting for a flavor profile and how to achieve that through the usage of caramel malts. And now, um, you know, you've built that kind of middle body flavor. You've built that, you know, that chocolatey toffee flavor, whatever you're going for there. And now you're considering like, okay, now the, the third component of this style, this export stout style is, uh, okay, roast, you know, that roasty flavor, roasted malt. Um, and so, um, again, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll heed to David here, but, uh, you know, you, you, when you have roasted barley, um, traditionally roasted barley, I believe is unmalted and just like torched barley. That's right. Yeah. Um, and then a, a, a chocolate malt is a, it, David, is it like a, a highly killed malt? It's still malted, right? Yes. I, I, it's, it's a finished malt, um, that, that is then roasted. Right. Okay. That's, that's typical of most of the really darker styles that they're okay. generally, they start out as malted, finished malted grains, um, or, or they're somewhere along the process of malted. Right. So you're, you're getting a ton of color though, and a ton of flavor from a small level of these really dark grains. Um, so now you're considering like, okay, how do I want to build that, uh, that roasted profile of this beer? Is it, is it roasted barley that I'm going for? Is it chocolate malt? They make like pale chocolate malt these days. They make a stuff stuff called like coffee malt and it's called coffee malt because it's supposed to mimic the flavor of coffee given it's it's roast profile or it's it's kiln profile um and so then yeah you're just you're you're achieving a, a flavor profile within the malt base and uh, going back a step too for, for me as a brewer i, I start with what do I want the body to taste like? How, where is this beer finishing fermentation? Is it a, a sweeter beer? Is it balanced with something, alcohol or hops or acidity? Is it, uh, is it strong? Is it sessionable? And that'll help me decide where does it start as an unfermented wort. Um, and then from there, I can decide on how much malt am I putting into this beer to get to that level of sugar uh, for pre-fermentation and what is my ratios of different types of malt that I'm building for this grist bill to achieve this finished flavor profile. Okay. So Tyler, how long, how much time or did you spend on planning this export stout beer? Just, just taking into account Ooh, what you um, just told me. I mean, you know, I, I'm going to say, for me, recipe development on a style like this is uh, it takes a few weeks and that's not like sitting down like with a pen and paper and reading, you know, th there's probably a good two weeks of just thinking, just spending a lot of time thinking and, um, you know, trying a beer and thinking more. And then when you actually kind of hit the hit the books a little bit of, you know, doing some reading and researching and then you know thinking more honestly and then kind of like for me then it, you dive into actually dealing with numbers uh and once you start diving into numbers now you're now you're looking to like put something down on paper as to this is what i'm going to go for this is it and so for me 
designing a recipe, the heavy work is just in the kind of mental preparation, the, the thought process that goes into deciding on a concept, deciding this is what I'm going for. Um, that's the hard part. That's the, the, uh, you can't even quantify that type of work. It's, it's thinking about uh, what you want your product to be. And once you really realize that, then you can kind of, then you have a goal in mind and you can use everything at your disposal to get to that goal. And you can really sit down and, uh, you know, break down the numbers as to what each malt's going to bring to you and where you can build from there. And we're just talking a malty beer here, not not like a hoppy beer oh, yeah. or acidic beer or you know a boozy beer or that kind of thing. So let's. Uh, so does anyone have the the Lampletter export stout with them today? Is anyone drinking it? I, I don't right now. I, I drank my last can. I think. <laughs> well, but, Kyle, I know the last time I talked to you, you were drinking it. Just for for, for you as a chef, uh, what what do you taste after all that explanation? What do you taste when you when you drank the Lampletter export stout? Yeah, I taste I taste malt. I taste um, let's see. I taste I don't taste coffee. You know, I think Tyler, you make a cuppa, something that's super mm-hmm. coffee. I mean, there's coffee yeah. in cuppa, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, I taste a, like a super super um, not a, not a thick. It's not a thick beer, but something. Um, super roasty um yeah just you can really taste like there's layers of malt um yeah it's a beer that's certainly driven to be on the uh if if balance in beer is a spectrum um an export stout it um if if you think of like a milk stout an english style sweet stout or a milk stout on being on the malt sweet end of the balance spectrum it's going to be in your face malty it's going to be a little sweet, a little creamy, um, really like milk chocolate. Uh, and now if you look at the other end of the spectrum uh, in terms of balance, an export stout is going to be hoppy and bitter and roasty. And, you know, it's going to be a little lighter in body uh, because it's, it's, um, it's kind of forefather was the Irish dry stout. So it's supposed to be dry and drinkable uh, or quaffable and, um, so it's, it's more gonna, it's more gonna give you that kind of back end kick of, uh, uh, oh, I'm getting, uh, you know, I'm getting a good kind of roast level and it. There's a nice little hot presence there too. That's really kind of tag teaming with that roast level. Oh yeah. That's yeah. great. Kyle, you did a great job. There's some really good guests and Tyler, in fact, I'm <laughs> going to have you on a, an episode in June where we're talking with the Brewers Association about style guidelines, but let's go back to David. So David, and in this process, um, do you design malts for breweries or, you know, how, how do you interact with breweries regarding their malt? Yeah. Um, I think there are kind of two approaches. Um, there's, you know, p- things that people are familiar with and things that people aren't familiar with. And from a perspective of, kind of a nascent industry where, um, you know, most brewers don't actually have the access to, to their maltsters, uh, this directly, um, they just kind of accept what they get. And where we fit in is, 
um, this area that allows us to work directly with brewers to come up with something like a flavor profile or a kind of more technical profile for a malt that they would want. Um, Tyler was talking about like recipe development from having a finished beer perspective, um, which is definitely um, how we approach a lot of a lot of our malts, and especially in the beginning, uh, when we wanted to do something that was familiar, accessible, um, readily understandable, you know, by by folks who uh, maybe didn't know that much about malt, but they knew what a pale malt was, they knew what a pills malt was. Um, but as you get deeper and the relationship develops a little bit more, you have the opportunity to develop um, different characteristics in malt. You know, do we want a malt to have like a specific flavor profile for a specific beer you want to do um, something that has a little bit more, uh, you know, notes of molasses or, you know, granola or figs or is, should it be nuttier or sweeter? Um, all from a recipe development standpoint um, and a, um, you know, that that's, that's a flavor um, conversation, but we can also talk about kind of technical conversation. Should you know this this malt drive um, kind of a, a more a sweeter beer, uh, kind of a finished beer, or or a drier one? Um, should it be light in color or um, darker? Um, so we're able to produce uh, source source the 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 grain to produce the kinds of malts that brewers want. Um, we are kind of in this middle ground of size where we can produce consistently available products and do small enough batches of really specialty things that, um, that, that, that brewers can, can experiment with or try out, um, and make a really special beer out of. So, um, like I'm drinking right now a beer made with our smoked malt and we make 350 pounds of this, uh, at a time. And that allows us to um, basically custom malt, custom smoke a batch of malt for for a brewery. Um, you know, they they took 250 or 300 pounds of this of our Applewood smoked malt. And they made a beer with it. Um, which, which beer is that? Which brewery? this is? Uh, you know, this is another Massachusetts brewery. Uh, sorry, I couldn't find any lamplighter up no, here. No, no worries. But it's uh, Wormtowns. Um, they just came out with a beer called Orbiting Blue Ox, and which we managed to get our hands on, um, which is a smoked farmhouse ale. And it includes um, our Applewood smoked malt, um, I think our our Yankee Pills. Um, th- those make up the majority of the Grisville. I think they used our Darker Munich, which has... Um, um, it has notes of graham crackers and biscuits. It's a little darker, and they used uh, some flake grains as well, oats and and spelt, which um, tend to provide a little bit more body and kind of grainier characteristics. Um, and you know, spelt isn't like a typical uh, brewer's grain right now. Um, there are definitely traditions and and styles in which grains like spelt or rye were used. Um, but typically when you're drinking a beer, it's going to be, you know, 80 or 80, 80 or 90 or 100% barley. Um, so I think the, the kinds of grains that are available to brewers these days um, 
are extraordinarily narrowly expanded by um, by working with craft mulsers and and local farmers. I think that's a that's a critical element of uh, of this kind of local environment. I mean, David, yeah, I, I absolutely like. I know we've worked on two projects in the past that come to mind. Of uh, you've okay. done um, a uh, buckwheat. Uh, like freshly cracked buckwheat for us where we were looking to use some raw buckwheat and a, a beer that's currently being aged uh, in one of our fooders to become a sour beer. But we chose buckwheat because it's high in caproic and caprylic acid. And we wanted to create this beer that as it aged uh, wild yeast will turn those uh, organic acids into really flavorful esters uh, combining an alcohol and an acid. Um and so, you know, that's something where if I were to contact Canada Malting Company, they would get back to me and say, hey, sorry, we don't produce a product like that. Uh, versus I can contact David and he'd say, you know, we can make that work. Like we could we could do something for you. And uh, I think last year, we're also going to do another batch of it this year. Um, we produced a, uh, we called it Overnight Oats. It was a collaboration with uh, Cambridge Brewing Company where we mashed in a small portion of uh, raw, raw, freshly cracked raw oats. If, if you have a raw grain that's cracked and sits around for too long, the moisture content is high enough where it could start to go a little rancid on you. Um, so David was able to get us some really freshly cracked raw oats, uh, sent it down to us. We, uh, after brewing one day, we went up to the brew house with Cambridge Brewing Company we mashed in a very small amount or relatively small amount. It was still about three, 400 pounds of uh, cracked raw oats, add a little bit of a sourdough start, starter and let that sit overnight. And then the next morning we came in and we mashed in the rest of the beer, the next 75% of the beer. And, um, and then we finished, we stepped that up. We did different uh, protein rests, uh, beta and alpha amylase rests, and we created this really sessionable, uh, drinkable with a kick of acidity because of that overnight rest uh, with a sourdough starter. Uh, T- Tyler, you just you just made my day because I was going to ask you if you weren't making a stout next year around this time for St. Patrick's Day, what would you make? And you just told me this beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this yeah, sounds like what I want to drink right now: a cracked oat, slightly sour beer. Yeah, it it really comes off as this like really bready. Uh, and the, the acidity really kind of helps cut that malt forward character and it's a lager too it's fermented with our lager yeast so it sits in the tank for five five weeks or so and it, it has plenty of time to condition and because it's a lager yeast that yeast doesn't create a ton of flavor and it really lets that malt profile shine um and yeah we're looking forward to brewing that again it was a really unique beer um i don't think it's like anything i've ever tried before so i was really excited about it um but yeah it's a, it's a really interesting concept kind of combining the idea of uh m- making bread and uh making beer at the same time when, when we came back in the next day and mashed the the second portion of the beer uh, we r- r- did runoff and ran it to the kettle and collected every every bit of uh, sugar liquid wort in the kettle. Uh, we went to mash out the beer, what's called, which is scraping all the spent grains out of the mash tun um, and you know giving them all to Kyle. Um, 
but we, we mashed out and, you know, underneath the false bottom in the mash ton, there was this, like, it was unbelievable. It was like, uh, I don't know if you ever had, um, um, like mashed sun chokes of like this really doughy mashed potato, like, uh, product. And it it was, it was delicious, but, (laughs) and it was just sitting at the bottom of the mash ton. And it's just from all that starch, um, from the oats that had sat with, uh, uh, bread yeast, uh, for, you know, 24 hours. And it just created this really doughy product. Uh, and you know, we, we converted some of it to sugars, but we knew that we weren't going to convert all of it. And it was like really interesting to, uh, to see that in, in our, uh, in our mash ton. Uh, well, that. I'm not going to ask you what, what beer we'd be drinking 200 years ago on St. Patrick's day. <laughs> Before Guinness, I think you just answered it. Although I'd like to ask that. I'm going to go to j- jump to Kyle. Kyle, starting a business. You know, you're in the food chain. Uh, give us some of your catchphrases because um, you're you're very inspiring. Like upcycle is a great word for corporations, but you're more than upcycling. Yeah, I'm the garbage man. Um, I think that's that's what I want to be when I grow up. Um, I want to be the guy. I mean, it's crazy to hear these two guys talk about um, varietals and sugar content and and the amount of energy that goes into growing. I think that's what people need to understand. Not that like it's nice to understand. They need to understand how much effort goes into the liquid in their cans or their bottles. Um, you know, people people grow that grain, right, and then that grain just doesn't magically appear into, into David's um, malt house. It gets trucked there, right? So there's a truck driver involved and then David's involved and this whole crew's involved. And then another truck driver's involved. And then that's headed to Tyler and Tyler's whole crew is involved, you know? And then after Tyler, my crew is involved, you know? And then after my crew is involved, another truck driver's involved. So I think the word like upcycle is nice to think that like you're fighting food waste by eating, you know, a cracker or a chip that used to be made um, or that's made with spent grain. And like on the surface, that's like a very nice notion. But for me, um, fighting food waste is about um, making all of those guys time worth the dollar that people are paying for it. Um there's just it's just it's unbelievable amount of effort that goes into this grain to throw it away um, when it has so much more to give. That's what I want to do, and I want to make as many people aware of that as possible before I leave this earth. I mean, Kyle's 100 percent right. Like, there's so much good stuff that that's good still one, in this grain. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I've always thought about the uh, the kind of the educational aspect of like what goes into beer as coming before the beer. Um, you know, there's people know about hops. Hops, hops are sexy, and every, everybody knows like four different varieties. And, um, that's crazy, right? They can like specify the kinds of varieties that they yeah, want in a beer, and they demand it. And to to that's not that's not the case in grain, you know. Not to mention, uh, is there barley in this beer? It's, you know, they're not saying like, oh, it's Newdale, it's uh, Golden Promise or, you know, Marisotter. That's that's kind of even a hard one to swallow. So I've always thought about it as, you know, getting people um, 
informed about the process up front. But but Kyle, you're really focused on this uh, this other side where you know it's after the beer, and here is the grain. Here is the grain that you are putting in your mouth and eating and uh, enjoying. That that kind of um, that kind of work is um, I haven't really thought about about it from that perspective. How um, how potentially more meaningful from uh, even just kind of a hedonistic point of view, where you're really enjoying the cracker. Um, that's that's a really valuable thing that you're doing. Right. I think it's a I think it's a super um, unique and valuable um, way to be able to educate people on something that they wouldn't normally care about. You know, people, like you said, people care about the hops. Um, they care about how like awesome your label looks. Um, they care about like if the brewery is Instagrammable, but <laughs> very few people care about like, yeah, like, um, you know, can I taste the barley in this beer is how much weed is in it first barley. Um, are there oats? What's like the viscosity of the beer? Like those are all things that, you know, when I taste a beer, those are the things I'm looking for, um, the malt characteristics and things like that. Um, and I think the beer drinker is a very powerful person. You know, the beer fanatic is a very powerful person. So if this is how it works in my mind, if I can get that powerful tribe of people to rally around malt and use the crackers and the chips as a way to get them interested in malt and learn about malting, then I think that, and I think Tyler would agree with me, is that that's the next level of, uh, uh, Jimmy, don't beat me up for saying this beer nerd, <laughs> you know, that that's like the next generation of beer nerd is like, what do you, what malts are you using? You know, yeah. like what's going on in here? Where, where is it yeah. from? Well, let's take a step back on spent grain. So in my lifetime, I've been to a brewery that that had a a sheep farmer take its spent grain, mm -hmm. and then that brewery would serve the cheese that was made from some of those sheep. That's cool at its brewery. And of course, I've been to. It seems more likely with whiskey people that sometimes they'll they'll do a dinner where where they, there's a pig that was fed on their their spent grain from the whiskey process. Mm. Um, so crackers is news. Uh, my 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 little fantasy is wow. Let's have a party where we can uh, have your your brewery crackers uh, with with some sheep's milk cheese that was also fed on the mm. same spent grain. <laughs> you know, we'll something feed, like that. We'll feed them all smoked malt <laughs> for like three years. <laughs> yeah, well, we're gonna we're gonna wrap up one thing. So, um, uh, David. I know that it seems to be, and I know definitely in New York, the big challenge is to get the right barleys because there really hasn't been a barley growing industry in New York for like 100 years, but they're getting it. But I noticed that you, you, you had a, a photo on Instagram uh, of like germinating rye. So what's sexy about rye? I mean, I, I know that in New York, like Empire Rye Whiskey is a project now because yes, you can use a higher 50% of rye. And to make a whiskey and people know what rye whiskey is mm -hmm. but wh where does rye come in play in in brewing and what are you doing with that you you have this beautiful like picture of germinating rye mm. i want to end on that note mm. well for me you know that photo which i'm like imagining it in my mind it's kind of silvery blue and almost with like a red tinge to it i'm, I'm just like, visualizing the kernel of grain um 
and to me, that's uh, rye doesn't have a husk on it. Barley has this uh, outer layer that envelops uh, and protects the the starches and the embryo, everything that would make it grow, and everything that um, provides the the brewers with the sugars and, and everything that it needs. Rye and wheat, they don't have those things, and so you can see directly into um, and onto the basically you can see the directly the kernel in front of you, and as it grows um it's just such an intimate process and uh it, when we floor malt we um we're turning by hand we're walking on this bed of grain and um gently turning it with uh with kind of this plow-like rake in order to let it breathe and um the the earthiness of the aroma is intoxicating and um just like the the hands-on experience with a grain of that nature of that kind is really exciting for, for a maltster. Um, I think, um, it's a really important, uh, thing in, in, in farming. It's, it's a, such a hardy, resilient grain to grow. Um, and it does really well. And if you've ever had like a rye bread, I mean, Kyle, you were talking about a Jewish delicatessen or bakery, I guess, uh, you know, you think of that, um, that that kind of hardiness to rye, that earthy quality to it in bread, and that translates, of course, uh, into beer. Um, and I guess Tyler could probably probably speak a little bit better about um, uh, or with more experience, probably, in, in how it comes across in the brewing process. But in finished beer, um, you know, earthiness, spiciness, there are these characteristics that come from rye um, in a flavor component, and also in uh, in how it feels, it's it's a lot silkier and smoother. Um, I think those are all like really attractive qualities in in a grain and in a finished uh, finished beer. And Tyler, ha- have you made rye beers? Yeah, we've done a few rye beers in the past. Um, rye is a really interesting grain, and you know, rye rye beer is a, t- a tough beer to uh, to market because, like like we've discussed, like malt isn't nearly as sexy as uh, hops right now. Um, but you know, rye is a very full flavored, um, uh, cereal grain. It's, it's really interesting. It's fun to play with. It makes wonderful pale ales. It makes wonderful IPAs because it plays so well with some of those, uh, spicier hops, those noble hops or, uh, you know, a blend of hops that has a little bit of a spicy character and some of that more American fruit character. Um, but yeah, as a, as a grain, it, like, like David said, it's, it's spicy, it's earthy. It's, it's this wonderful, uh, you know, um, meeting of the two. And it's, it's also high in beta glucans and it's high in protein and you get this like full flavored, not, not thickness, but almost, uh, this body from it. Um, like you would a wheat or an oat and it, it, from a brewing perspective, though, if you're brewing a rye beer and you're you're looking at 15 to 20 percent or higher of your grist bill as rye, you're in for a long day ahead of you because uh, <laughs> rye does not have uh, a husk, like David said. And so, either you're making up that husk portion with some rice hulls or other oat hulls, or you know you're in for a long day because uh, performing a proper brewer's mash. Uh, is tough when you don't have the right amount of uh, barley hull or, or husk in your mash because that acts as a sort of um, separation layer 
that helps liquid water and sugary water trickle through in even channels um, um, through the bed itself and through the false bottom and into your pump and then into the kettle where you're going to boil. Um, so, you know, if, if you have a high percentage of rye in, in a beer, then uh, uh, you might be in for a long day. Um, but, you know, as long as you're planning ahead of time, or you, you know what you're up against, um, you can easily overcome it. But rye is, to me, a, a very distinct um, flavor. We use it in a lot of um, uh, farmhouse styles or, uh, you know, uh, Belgian style saisons or sour beers because it, it contains so much flavor and so many organic acids and other flavor compounds that it makes for wonderful, uh, unique uh, farmhouse beers as well as long-term mixed culture beers uh, because it's able to contribute a lot to the ultimate uh, palate that the uh, wild yeast and bacteria has to work with and pull from. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a kind of, it's a superb grain that just does not nearly get enough credit that it, it should get. Wow. We, 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 we got through a lot of stuff here in this, <laughs> in this little over an hour, Kyle, quite an amazing show. And, and it's funny. I, like I said, I, I saw that you were on cutting the curd and you had crackers and, um, I went to Cambridge. I met Tyler. I've, I've got a, bo- a can of the, the wolves Porter oh, yeah. Yeah. from Lamplighter with me now. And um, we got to meet there's, – there's a lot of stories that we just covered, and, and we're going to cover all of them with you guys again. Um, is there anything that, that someone wants to say, last words, um, before we close out? Ooh, I don't know. If not, I think we covered it. Okay. Yeah, I, have a, I have a lot of questions for Kyle. It's the first time I met Kyle, so I'm <laughs> so interested in, in the baking process. And uh, I guess, you know, if I had one question, just coming off the rye, have you ever worked with rye in, in the Brewers Crackers, or do you have plans to? No, no. Uh, my goal has always been to stay consistent with whatever grain I get. Um, I've been lucky enough to be able to get grain from breweries that are busy enough that are always brewing the same beers consistently. Um, I get my grain from either Zero Gravity um, or Frost Beer Works. Um, they brew a lot of IPAs. Um, so normally my my makeup is usually IPAs, things like that. Yeah. Just so I know what I'm getting from like a, just from like a nutrition panel standpoint, I need to like prove to, unlike beer, I need yeah. to prove to people what I'm using. <laughs> Kyle, I think, I think you're kind of like of, of the, the companies here, you're probably the most macro focused because you're producing a food product that ideally you could send to uh, you know, multiple locations across the country. So you need that level of consistency. You don't really have the ability to be like, Hey, I'm going to do a one-off cracker. And it's like, no, nah, well, you right. maybe do it that in like a local shop or something like that. But for the <laughs> yeah, most probably, part, probably the question I get the most is like, Hey, can you do, you know, whose grain <laughs> are you getting? Right. Yeah. Like it's not about, you know, I'm trying to make a cracker. So I'm making just, I'm making like you guys are making, I'm making thousands of, of boxes of crackers a day, yeah. you know, and to just be able to use, you know, a smoke porter malt here and then an IPA malt here, it just kind of throws a rut. So I'm trying to focus. So I guess my whole thing is I'm trying to stay focused on the the mission, which is fighting food waste and shining a light on what you guys do, because I think people need 
for people to understand what I'm doing, they need to understand how much work goes into it. That's like my theme in my business. So what we got to do next, we got to find a sheep farmer, <laughs> give them the same spent grain. And I'm, I want to have the, the sheep cheese, spent grain sheep cheese with uh, some of Brewer's crackers or maybe the chips, Kyle, uh, right? Uh, the, I think the chips are going to be the one that, um, I think that's it. I think that's the one. Yeah. Spent grain pita chips. I think yeah. that's the one that's going to take us. Uh, Maybe with cinnamon and sugar. I so. I just tried some of those, Kyle. They're delicious. Yeah, they're they're scary delicious. Yeah. I'm worried. Uh, well, I'll tell you what. We're going to talk a lot more about all this stuff, and you guys are great. And thank you for the introduction to Boston and New England, Kyle. So I want to thank you guys so much. Tyler at Lamplighter Brewing in Cambridge, David at Blue Ox Malt House in Maine, and Kyle of Brewers Crackers. Thanks for joining me on Heritage Radio Network. Big shout out to our producing intern, Caroline Fox, Armin Spengen, our engineer, and I'm Jimmy Carboni. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Woo! Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at Facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.